Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. January is Adopt a Rescued Bird Month. And I want to share with you a little bird adventure Peter and I had a while back. So we had just driven away from our house, and maybe a half a mile down the road, and we live in a suburban area, we spotted this hawk on the street. And he or or she was obviously struggling and apparently injured. She couldn't get off the ground. And when she tried to take off, one wing would flap and the other wing was sort of sticking out an angle and not moving. And she was not a baby or a juvenile bird who would not be expected to get off the ground. So we quickly pulled over, got out of the car, and the hawk ventured out into someone's backyard. But Dr. Lori's law is that trespassing onto private property is always permissible when you're trying to rescue an animal. So that's what we did. We followed this hawk into this guy's yard, and another nearby neighbor saw what we were trying to do and gave us a cardboard box that was in our garage. And we were able to gently capture this bird, placed her in the box, and and carefully punched some holes in the box. Anyway, we took the bird to a local bird rescue and rehab center, and we had confirmation that the wing was indeed injured, and we were given reassurance that not only did we do the right thing by bringing the bird into them, but that the bird will be just fine once the wing heals. And I've got some uh, pictures of that event. Of course, you always want to snap some uh, photos. And I'll post this too with this show. It's a Cooper's Hawk. It's a Cooper's Hawk. Now, Peter, if you remember, there are things we did do correctly and things that we possibly could do better next time around. So a couple tips you might want to keep in mind if you should encounter a bird on the ground. The first thing is to make sure that the bird really needs your help. Without touching the bird, look at the wings to see if they're both moving and symmetrical. And if you verify that the bird is not hurt or injured, then chances are you're dealing with a juvenile bird. And juveniles go through this branching stage, I think they call it, where they're learning to jump and they're not quite flying yet. They sort of hop from branch to branch and they're sort of gliding a little bit. And then they can end up on the ground during this normal developmental stage. And if they're not in immediate danger, right, they're not going to fall into a nearby pool. There's no cats or dogs around. You can safely observe them or simply leave them alone because chances are the mother is around, probably nearby hunting for food for them and she'll be back and she'll scoop her baby up. Now, if the juvenile bird is in danger or in an area that is potentially not safe, like on the sidewalk where people walk their dogs or near a pool, you can move her to a safe area close by and the mother will find her. Or if you see the nest, you can actually gently deposit the juvenile back in its nest. Again, only if the bird is in danger. Otherwise, leave uninjured birds alone. Now, going back to interacting and capturing an injured bird. Now, you want to get your box ready, so you, you got to plan ahead a bit, because the more time that goes by, by you being there and trying to capture this bird, the more stressed out the bird will get. Oh, and very importantly, take a t-shirt or a towel or a sweater or whatever you have with you, even if it means taking the shirt off your back, and use that to gently cover the bird, which will help you greatly to lift the bird up more gently so you can then place the bird in the box. That's right. I did not take my t-shirt off to 
help this bird get in the box. If I had known, I probably would have done it, I guess. Yes, yeah, you would have done it because I would have made you. Mm-hmm. And you, so you don't want to be carrying the bird around, right? You want to get the bird in the box and quiet as quickly as possible. And now once you got her in transport, you want to keep the bird warm, 80 to 90 degrees. And, and by the way, you don't want your box to be too big because the bird can injure herself struggling in, in a big box. And put a few air holes in the box so the bird can breathe. You know, be careful when you do this. Furthermore, never feed the bird or give it water. The bird will be fine until you get her to the experts who know what to do. Just keep him quiet, minimize any stress, and keep it dark for him. And then call your local bird rescue, and they're, they're everywhere, actually. Once you start looking online, just find the nearest bird rescue to you. And you might want to call them early just to get advice on what you might do and to confirm that this is a bird that you should be delivering to them or if it should be put back. And in our situation, since we came across this hawk in the early evening, we put her in the box in our laundry room overnight, which was a nice, quiet place, turned off the lights, kept our dogs quiet, and we kept it dark and kept it warm in there. And again, really trying to minimize the stress until we got the bird to the rescue the following morning. And you know what? The laundry was folded the next morning. Amazing. And you know, thinking back, Peter, about our rescue, we were pretty lucky that we didn't get clawed or bitten because this was a raptor. And actually, as you mentioned, we learned that the bird was a Cooper's hawk. And by definition, hawks are diurnal raptors with keen eyesight, sharp talons for capturing and killing their prey, and sharp hooked beets used to tear their prey into bite-sized pieces. So taking a towel or sweater or even just take the t-shirt off your back if you want, and this will allow you to not only place the bird in the box more gently, but will protect your hands as well. And you know, we also were lucky, I don't know if you remember this, but the owner of this house whose property we were on, uh, he came out in his bathrobe and wondered what we were doing there and we sort of made hand signals what we're doing and he was okay with it. But I guess we were lucky that he was a nice guy. He was a nice guy, but regardless, we would have gone ahead with this rescue whether he was a nice guy or not a nice guy, right? Yes. And if you remember, Peter, this hawk was very close to his pool. That's right. I do remember that now. Yeah. Okay, so just to to get us back on track. We've been talking about rescuing injured birds and what you could and should do and maybe should not do. However, it's Adopt a Rescue Bird Month. And we will just summarize it like this. If you want a bird, just adopt a bird. You don't go online and buy a bird. Don't go to a bird breeder. Don't support the illegal trade of exotic birds, okay? Just find out where birds needing adoption are and go register, get interviewed, and adopt your bird or birds. And of course, if you adopt a bird with a long lifespan, like an African gray who might outlive you, you have to, of course, make sure you have planning provisions if you pass away before your adopted bird. Okay, so there's the bottom line. It's Adopt a Rescue Bird Month, and that's all you need to know about acquiring a new bird. Please adopt and don't buy them. Now, back to what you might encounter in life, and that is you're going to come across birds who are possibly injured, possibly they're branching or gliding. What should I do? And Lori has given you a real good summary on that. And Lori, I just came across this item I thought you'd like, also having to do with birds, not rescuing them or adopting them, but protecting them in the wild. A very special fence to protect a very special species of bird has just been completed in Hawaii on Mauna Loa. Did you hear about that? 
This project was started a few years ago, and the Hawaiian petrel, which is a seafaring bird that nests way up near the top of the volcano, this bird, which the Hawaiians called Uahu, was being killed by feral cats. So the cats are invasive, and they are just interfering with the breeding of these uh, birds. The birds are very interesting. They fly most of their lives, and they come and they nest in little crevices in the lava, and they've got video of the cats going way into their burrows and coming out with one of the little birds and just eating it or taking it away. And so it was decided to do what the New Zealanders are doing, and that is to create a long fence, which is cat-proof, and I'll describe it in a moment, to surround the nesting areas of these birds. And it was a long project. The, the terrain is very jagged. The workers are way up at high altitude. They live up there for weeks at a time. You can only get there by helicopter, and, and all the supplies and equipment and food needs to be flown in and out. And they created a five-mile fence. And the fence is about six feet tall. And the top of it has a curve on it. So the cats are unable to climb onto or over this fence. This project was just completed. And the birds are going to be returning in April to prepare their nest sites. And they return in June and they lay a single egg. So hopefully they'll have a better breeding season this year. And we'll see if the video cameras catch any of those cats. You're listening to Animals Today with Dr. Lori Kirshner and Peter Spiegel. Hope you're having a great new year so far. Make sure to visit Animals Today at animalstodayradio.com. There you can see many years of previous shows and listen to them anytime, anywhere. And subscribe on iTunes and every week you will get a new show automatically uploaded to your device. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit Advancing the Interests of Animals at aianimals.org and check out what they're doing there. Animals Today Radio, we've been on the air for nine years. We started out locally in Palm Springs and then we became syndicated and we are a proud member of the Radio America family. So... Thanks for enjoying the ride with us, and we appreciate your comments. We appreciate your support. After the break, we've got more interesting bird discussion. We are going to talk about protecting birds around your house, things that you can do to keep them from slamming into your windows, things that you can do to attract them to your home and make them happy and healthy. You're listening to Animals Today. So you and your family have decided to get a dog or cat. We think that's great. And we want to remind you to adopt your next companion animal instead of buying. That's because shelters have so many loving dogs and cats waiting for a home that it just doesn't make sense to buy a pet from a breeder or pet store. And sadly, over half of all animals that enter shelters are killed. That's millions per year. So when you adopt your pet from a shelter, most likely, you really are saving a life. When you go to a shelter to adopt your new dog or cat, you will find many wonderful choices for your new family member. And please tell your friends and family to visit the shelter when they are ready to get a new dog or cat. Ask anyone. When you adopt an animal, you'll have a loyal friend for life. And you'll feel pretty good, too. 
This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIAnimals.org and on Facebook. That's AIAnimals.org. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. According to the Bird Conservation Network, more than 100 million North American birds die every year from window collisions. These accidents are more common during spring mating season. So caring for a bird who's hit a window. Mm. Okay, here are easy steps you can take. And really, the goal is to refrain from interacting with the bird more than is necessary. Now, there's a good chance that the bird has sustained a concussion, in which case it should be removed from all stimuli. Anything else will make its condition worse. So first thing you do is just observe the bird. Often the bird will only need a couple minutes to recover. So stay and watch and make sure that no predators attack her be before she recovers. Keep any dogs or cats away from the area, just sort of guard the area for a few minutes. Now, if the bird does not recover within five or six minutes, it might be unconscious since it might have sustained head trauma and merely just needs a safe place to relax. And remember, removing all stimuli will significantly increase the probability of the bird recovering from a potentially fatal concussion. So you want to get a cardboard box, like, like a shoe box, and that will block all incoming light. And to make it comfortable, you should line it with soft cotton cloth or little towel or paper towels. Pick up the bird. You can use gloves if you have them. Hold the bird upright so that it can breathe. Use a firm grip without squeezing the bird. Hold her by the wings near the body. Now place the bird into the box and shut the box lid. Make sure the box has breathing holes in it. Put the box in a warm, sheltered location out of direct sunlight. Keep it away from predators, right, including cats. Remember, eliminate all stimuli. So observe the box every 15 to 20 minutes for a couple hours, and when the bird appears to have recovered, take it outside, preferably in the woods, remove the lid, and hopefully the bird will fly away. Now, if after two hours the bird is awake and alert but unable to fly away, you should consult the wildlife rehabilitation director or an expert who can provide specialized care for the bird. And obviously, if you notice injury to his shoulder or wing, it will require skilled medical assistance and months of rehabilitation. So call your local bird or wildlife rehabilitation center. And Lori, we do have some personal experience with this because when we moved into our new house, which has a, a lot of large uh, windows, we were hearing this occasional thud, and uh, I'd go outside and see the bird just dropped on the, on the ground there. And it's so disheartening and upsetting that we really had to educate ourselves of what we could do around the house to prevent this from happening. 
because this was starting to get to be a real big problem. So we went online and we found that these uh, special decals, and they were supposed to have some feature, some optical property that would be very visible to the birds and prevent them from slamming into the windows. And we placed multiple decals on our windows all around the house. And you know what? They didn't work at all. Unfortunately, the special property was not the right property. So we went to a plan B and we just went out and got ourselves some self-adhering plastic film. It was colored. It was not beautiful to look at, but we just cut dozens of squares and just put them everywhere all over the place. And that really did the job. I can't remember one instance in the past five years since we've put them up where we've heard that thud that just makes your heart sink. But there are some other things that you could do and should do if birds slamming into your windows are a problem. The birds are trying to fly through the window. And so you want to make it seem as if they can't do that. So you want to alter the appearance of the windows. You can pull shades down or or you can put something on the glass. Uh, some of them look like silhouettes of birds, but, but it really, it just helps the birds know not to slam into the glass. If you are feeding birds, you want to make sure that the feeders are in the right location. And that is they're either very close to the windows or they're further away so that the birds just stay away from the windows altogether. Some people like to use a screen or a netting, which will make a softer impact for the birds. And another neat trick you could try, I, and this is from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, they have a good resource, which you should take a look at, is taking something like a bar of soap and using that to mark the glass so the birds can see it better. Now, somewhat related, you might wonder what can you do to help birds around your home? Okay, so you've figured out how to protect them from harming themselves by flying into your windows, but what can you do to help birds around your house? Well, here's a couple of tips, and this is from the American Bird Conservancy, and they recommend, of course, keep your cats indoors or use a leash. We all know about that. Cats like to kill birds, so keep your cats inside. It's safer for them anyway. Uh, reduce or avoid the use of pesticides or fertilizers around your yard, okay? Landscape, you should alter your landscaping with birds in mind. Besides putting out bird feeders to give the birds seed, the birds like to eat insects. And if you allow your grass to grow a little wild and your plants to sort of be native to the region, then there's gonna be lots of little bugs and the birds are going to come and eat them and they need that protein. So make your home a little habitat for the birds. If you really get into this, you can really make your home, even with a relatively small yard, a really attractive place for birds, and it'll be good for them, and you'll enjoy it too. And major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. Okay, Lori, here's a good news story. Down in South America, there is a new elephant sanctuary called Elephant Sanctuary Brazil. They have two residents so far, and they are continuing their build-out. The highly criticized Mendoza Zoological Park, which is in Argentina, they have agreed to 
send over four of their elephants to this sanctuary, ending their elephant program. This sanctuary, Elephant Sanctuary Brazil, it has 2,800 acres. It's in the state of Mato Grosso. And it's run by Scott Blaze, who is well-known because he co-founded the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. It's believed that at least 50 elephant are in private hands or in zoos or being used as performers in South America, and they need to ultimately get moved to the sanctuary, which is being built. You know, the most expensive part of building the sanctuary, besides perhaps the land acquisition, is the pipe that's used to make the fences. So go visit Global Sanctuary for Elephants, uh, watch the videos, and uh, maybe you can help them out a little bit. It's really a wonderful story. Thanks for listening. More with the show after the break. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio. And I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. back to the show. You know, we've come a long way in the use of live animals in medical training from the days Peter and I went to medical school, which was in the late 1980s. In both of our schools, live dogs were used in laboratory experiments to teach students principles of physiology. Just imagine a huge room filled with anesthetized dogs hooked up to all sorts of measuring devices, and at the end of the afternoon, they were simply euthanized. We both remember being a little traumatized going through this experience, even though we were told that each of these dogs were going to be euthanized at a shelter anyway, and at least the students could learn something from the dogs. Now, fortunately, as I just mentioned, most medical schools these days, but not all, have stopped using live animals for these sorts of, quote, educational purposes, and instead are using models and computer simulations. Well, I'm very pleased to report that the trend is hitting veterinary training schools. And in a moment, we're going to be speaking with Teddy Farias, dean of Wichita Area Technical College, which is about to start using a lifelike canine model for training of its students. But first, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Christopher Sackles, founder and CEO of Sindaver Labs, which manufactures the Sindaver synthetic canine. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sackles. Thank you for having me. What's your background, and how did you get interested in this area? Uh, well, by education, I'm an engineer. Uh, I've got degrees in mechanical engineering, uh, material science, and polymer science. Uh, my industrial experience is uh, almost all, uh, before I started Sendaver, was all medical device and uh, pharmaceutical uh, as a device engineer and as a consultant. Are veterinary schools and veterinary technical schools utilizing live animals to teach their students? 
Live animals uh, as a part of the uh, the general curriculum in, in U.S. vet schools uh, is on its way out. There are a few that still use live animals. I think most schools have switched to, uh, to on the canine side, to cadavers, uh, which they get from a variety of sources, including, uh, you know, former pound animals. Yeah. Describe your invention. Well, just like our Sendaver synthetic human, our Sendaver synthetic canine uh, is a model that replicates uh, anatomy of the uh, the canine in this case in, in great de- detail uh, using uh, materials that are designed to uh, to mimic uh, live tissue from the standpoint of mechanical properties, of physical chemical properties, dielectric properties. They're made uh, almost entirely out of water. Uh, they're, uh, if you look at them on average, they're about 85% water by mass. Mm. Uh, with uh, the balance being uh, different kinds of fibers and different salts, you know, just like live tissue. Christopher, what's the price of these, and are the models reusable? Uh, the retail price of the synthetic canine, if you buy them in single quantities, is twenty-eight thousand five hundred. So they're 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 quite expensive relative to uh, to an animal cadaver. Yeah. Uh, the difference is that uh, you know they are reusable. It's a piece of capital equipment that uh, that will last essentially forever. Uh, and they're designed to be, you know, refurbished, you know, basically by replacing uh, the tissues and the organ systems. Do you envision these models being used in veterinary schools and tech schools all around the country and around the world? Yeah, not just across the U.S., but, uh, you know, throughout the world. It's, you know, it's not just a, a matter of cost. It's uh, their ethical considerations. I think uh, in a great many cases, the students that go into these schools don't want to uh, rely on uh, not just live animals, but uh, you know animals that were ultimately euthanized for this purpose. Uh, and also, the you know one of the primary benefits of uh, using you know our synthetic platform is that we can uh, we're providing something that's you know reproducible, uh, repeatable. You know, blood flows involved. You know, these these models actually breathe and, and bleed, and uh, we incorporate uh, you know pathologies on demand of the instructors. So. Uh, you're not just getting kind of, you know, the luck of the draw with the animal. You're getting, you know, something, you know, an animal that, you know, has a pathology that the instructor actually wants to challenge the students with. I think it's fantastic. Founder and CEO, Sindaver Labs, Dr. Christopher Sackley. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I want to now welcome to the show the Dean of Health Sciences at Wichita Area Technical College, Dr. Teddy Farias, and Amanda Hackeret. She's Program Director. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Amanda and Dr. Farias, how did you first learn about the Sindaver model? And in your view, why is it a needed advancement? Okay, well, that's a two-part question, and we'll tag team that question. Concerning how we learned about it, we had a Title III grant, a government grant that uh, gave us some funds to improve some of the technologies within our programs. We've actually worked with Sindaver before. Uh, One of our program directors, our program director of surgical technology, he saw them on Shark Tank where they had a human Sindaver. So we looked at that, we assessed it, and then we wrote that into the grant and we were approved for it. So we had this human Sendaver model. We were very happy with this human Sendaver model. And whenever I was looking at their website and, you know, doing some more research about it, I saw that they had a canine model coming up. At the time when I saw it, it, was, it said coming soon. And I said to myself, as 
hey, we're starting a vet tech program. We're very excited about the human uh, endeavor that we have. It's great cutting edge technology. It would be very nice to also get this canine endeavor, or as I refer to it, the doggy endeavor. One of the biggest reasons it's so important to have on campus for our veterinary technician students is the canine endeavor will allow our students to reduce live animal use to accomplish the clinical skills that's needed from the American Veterinary Medical Association. So is it standard practice to use live animals? It is standard practice. The United States Department of Agriculture oversees live animal use in both research and education. And there's usually limits put on how many times a procedure can be performed per student. Uh, the SINDABR allows our students to have no limits to practice their skills. Please explain how veterinary technician students need to have this kind of hands-on experience. For instance, this model allows practice surgeries to be performed, and the vet technicians are not the ones performing the surgery after training, correct? They do not perform the surgeries, but we do uh, assist with surgery and anesthesia. So being able, again, to reduce the live animal use uh, for surgical procedures allows the students to have a real handhold on the most important of procedures, which is anesthesia and surgery. So you're going to begin these models in the spring. Are your teachers and students aware of the change, and what are they saying about it? Uh, our students have heard a little bit of the buzz. Uh, as soon as it's delivered, we expect there to be uh, quite a bit of excitement on campus with everybody wanting to lay eyes on it uh, first. Um, but all of our staff, uh, faculty, staff will also be uh, trained on how to use this and, and all the capabilities uh, that it, it brings to our, our school. Yeah, it's very exciting. If this works out, I imagine you're going to want cat models and rabbit models too. Is that correct? We would love to have any of that. Uh, the question is, is will it be available? Uh, this Sendever, the uh, synthetic canine, is the first of its kind, and it only comes in a canine. So uh, that's what we'll be working with. Uh, the majority of our, although our veterinary technician program will work with all sorts of animals, uh, a lot of the animals that we'll work with will be companion animals or, or dogs, although we'll see large animals, exotics, etc. Um, also with our uh, equipment here, it will be in November the 10th. So we're going to have it in just a few weeks here. Also, I'd just like to mention that we're going to be the first veterinary technician school to receive the synthetic canine model. Uh, there are some veterinary medicine schools in Florida that have it, but we will be the first associate-level veterinary technician school to have this model. Very, very exciting. Well, good luck to you, and perhaps we'll catch up with you over the summer and see how it went. That sounds great. Dean of Health Sciences at Wichita Area Technical College, Dr. Teddy Farias, and Amanda Heckra. She's the program director. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Peters, I mentioned earlier in the introduction, both your and my medical school used live dogs as part of a teaching laboratory for the students. I chose to not participate or partake in any way in those sessions. Do you have any recollection of your dog lab days in medical school? Uh, well, Laurie, I do have a very, very vivid uh, recollection of, of actually one day. It was done on one day in my school, uh, which was in Ohio. What was set up ahead of time was in our lab area, uh, which was filled with desks and little lab stations. They had the uh, dogs uh, all anesthetized, unconscious, uh, sort of spread eagle, 
hooked up to anesthesia machines and IVs and lots of monitors, like EKGs and, and monitors to measure their oxygen and their carbon dioxide levels, stuff like that. And it was almost surreal. It was like you are in a movie set to see these uh, still animals that were set up. And we were told, okay, these animals, they're on their way to be euthanized, and this is their uh, final stop. So make the best of it. Uh, we were allowed to opt out too, but I did participate. And uh, it was really emotionally difficult. I tried to get the most as I could from it educationally. It was really a method to teach some basic principles of physiology by altering the respiration rate, for instance, or pharmacology by injecting this heart medicine or that and watching the various responses. And yes, you could see it happen. And then when you were done, uh, in contrast to what I've read online, the uh, students were not asked to euthanize the dogs. We were let out. And uh, by the time everyone was uh, gone, then uh, the staff would really put the dogs down. And that would really sanitize it for us somewhat. But everyone knew what was happening. And really, I remember the imagery of that day just like it was yesterday. And and I'll just say it was uh, quite an experience, not a pleasant one. I'm glad things are better these days. Peter, it's so senseless and unnecessary. I know it's pretty much eliminated these days uh, using live dogs in med schools. But did you learn anything from it? Did you gain anything from it? You know, uh, remember, this is the uh, late 80s, and I do think I learned something. I don't remember what I what I learned. But uh, these days, of course, there's much better ways. There's computer simulations. There are models, as we uh, understand. But you didn't need to do that to be the doctor you are today. Really, I think even in the late 80s, it was a holdover from a previous era even then, and it wouldn't have even been needed then. Agreed. Stay with us. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm Bob DeRigo Jones, and this is Let's Be Fair. In January of 1776, American patriot Thomas Paine published a pamphlet called Common Sense. It helped spark the American Revolution. This January, as we think about our goals for the coming year, let's revisit this historic document and hear what Paine told his fellow colonists. In his opening paragraph, Paine wrote, and I quote, A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right, and raises, at first a formidable outcry in defense of custom. In today's language, he was saying that it's easy to lose sight of how wrong something is when it becomes an everyday part of one's life. Let's be fair, that's exactly why we've used these segments each week to highlight the negative impact that excessive litigation has on daily life in America. Now, as we start a new year, we're also going to share stories about how excessive government regulation holds America back. It's time to challenge the status quo. Learn more. Visit our website at centerforamericatv.org. Welcome back to the show. It's a fact of life that sometimes, too often in my opinion, older cats are no longer able to stay with their humans and need a place to go. Sometimes the owners pass away or the cat might become ill with the owner unable or unwilling to care for him or her. Or in other unfortunate incidences, the owner might not have very good reasons for giving up their cat. Whatever the circumstances, these older cats need a place to live out their lives. 
One such place that I recently learned about is called Cat's Cradle Cat Sanctuary and Hospice, which is the wonderful retirement project of Bruce and Terry Jenkins from Lutz, Florida. And they're with me now. Welcome, Bruce and Terry. Hi, Doctor. Hi, Dr. Laura. Terry, tell us the story. How did the Senior Cat Sanctuary begin? It actually began a few years ago when I had the opportunity uh, due to some changing in housing of uh, some friends of my sister's to adopt two old cats. Uh, uh, we had done a number of rescues through the years, but they were always kittens. But these were old cats, um, 11 and 12. And uh, I was totally surprised at how loving and, and accommodating they were and how well they adapted to our household, which has always been filled with many animals and children and, and people in general. Uh, so it was really my first experience with adopting a, an older cat, and uh, it, it just gave me the idea that these were two cats that had nowhere to go, and we were just lucky enough to find them, and it, it planted the seed uh, that has become Cat's Cradle. Describe to us the facility and the features of the sanctuary. Uh, Dr. Lori, the facility started out as really a, a play area for our children about 15 years ago. We built this western town on uh, about half an acre at the back of our property. And we, we recognized that the cats uh, that we were taking care of, including the two that uh, Terry just mentioned, really were probably best suited to be in their own area. Uh, the dogs were that we had uh, were upsetting them, and we just decided, you know what, we've got a wonderful opportunity here to turn this uh, western town into a sanctuary for old cats, which would uh, give us an opportunity to bring in more uh, senior cats, just like the two that we had already. So we started out by uh, enclosing part of the town so that the cats would feel safe from the horse and the goats and some other things that we had in the same area. And then we expanded it by adding uh, catwalks, which are about six or seven feet off the ground, which uh, run to the other buildings uh, that have uh, attractions for the cats. And where do these cats come from? I, I bet once the word is out, you get a lot of calls. Well, most of the cats, uh, met, well, let's put it this way. Many come from private families who have uh, elderly parents who uh, can no longer keep their animals, and sometimes the kids can't take care of them. Uh, we also uh, find our cats from uh, uh, veterinary facilities that, that have a cat that's scheduled for euthanasia. And uh, we also have rescued a number of cats from shelters that may have to take an animal but realize that they cannot adopt these cats out if they're over the age of 10. So we'll get a call from a, um, a rescue facility when they find an animal that, that other than being old is fine. So we, we have kind of a, a mixed source of cats. They've all been wonderful. Uh, we've also had some cats that have just been dropped off right at our home uh, with, with nothing more than the box that they're in. So there have been a number of sources, and uh, the cats that have come to us are all equally wonderful, uh, no matter what the source. Oh, you guys are wonderful. The photos on the website show many unique and hand-built enclosures and tunnels and gardens and other cat-friendly structures. Do you build these yourself? Uh, yes, I do. I am always thinking about uh, what enrichment uh, activities 
would appeal to an older cat, and we want to, of course, have them uh, uh, experience all of all of their remaining senses. So we have uh, attractions that involve climbing and also uh, uh, smelling, like our our catnip island, and we have uh, some activities which enable them to use their um, abilities to reach in and grab things or go after something. Uh, so there's there's a lot of different things that they can be doing. They don't just have to be be laying around like they might be if they were in somebody's home. Now, what do you do for veterinary care? And and by the way, how do you pay for the cost involved in caring for these cats? Uh, we use a local uh, veterinarian that we've worked with. Uh, they've been our vet for over 25 years uh, because that's how long we've lived in our home. And um, we do get a discount for the care of the rescues, which we appreciate greatly. We uh, have been fortunate to receive donations uh, from cat lovers uh, to help support the veterinary care, and the rest we, we fund ourselves. As, as most cat owners or pet owners know, some months are easy and some months aren't. Things happen. Uh, you have a couple good months and then something will go wrong. Uh, but uh, we've learned a lot along the way, and we're very grateful for the veterinary service that we have probably two miles from our home. Do you have many volunteers, and can people visit just to hang out with the cats for a while? Well, we've, uh, we've limited uh, the, our volunteers uh, at this point to our family, uh, and we're, you know, we're very careful about the folks that, co- that come to our sanctuary because of the uh, fragility of some of these cats. We don't want them bringing anything in, particularly something like, uh, like uh, feline leukemia. So all of our cats that we accept uh, for placement with our facility with the full knowledge that they'll probably be here for the, uh, the remaining years of their life right. are checked by a vet and they're tested to make sure that they are negative in uh, feline l- leukemia. You know, my heart always goes out to these senior animals. They always seem to be the least likely to be adopted from a shelter and most likely to be dumped or relinquished when they get older. Would you recommend that people adopt older cats? Um, I think people should consider it. Uh, It it was a new experience for me because naturally kittens are very appealing. Um, But one of the things people need to realize is how long a cat can live far longer than a dog in many cases. And, and also that the, the personality in the cat that you meet, who might be 9 or 10 or 11, uh, is, is really very well formed. And the cat that you meet is, is really the cat that you'll get to know and love, um, where there's far more questions with a kitten and, uh, and far more things that you need to face in terms of care, neutering and spaying and the rest of it. Um, so, again, it was a new world for us, and I, I think people should consider it because they're wonderful pets, and in most cases, they live uh, very healthy lives and full lives right until uh, the, the time for them to go. What's your website? Our website is www.cats-cradle.org, and we also have a Facebook and a Twitter page, uh, which will uh, allow people to see what's going on most most recently. Bruce and Terry Jenkins, thank you so much for what you're doing for our feline friends. Thank you, Dr. Laurie. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet.
the animals. 